This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for a bigger job, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. If one man can save the city, could that same man destroy it? And then we travel to Britain to take a look at the bizarre story involving a defense contractor known as Marconi Systems. Who or what left a trail of bodies that perplexes investigators to this very day? Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. This is our Friday episode. Hope you guys have a great weekend. We have a ton of stuff to cover. Breaking, breaking news. But first off, before I get to that, let's give a shout out to our newest Patreon supporter, Mikhail Kawi. Mikhail Kawi, thank you so much for supporting the show. Really, really helps out a lot. You are going to be our chauffeur, our pilot for the day. If you can't support the Patreon, that's fine too. Just help get the word out about the show. Really, really helps out a lot. So Mikhail, let's go ahead and hop in the Carpenter Caboose. We've only used this one time so far, I think. So you will be the official second person. First is the worst, second is the best, right? We're leaving behind Hood River, Oregon. We're headed up to CHOP. You're like, what? Where's CHOP? If you haven't been following the news recently, CHOP is the Capitol Hill organized protest. It's a six-block zone in the heart of downtown Seattle that protesters have taken over. And they say until their demands are met, which are like abolish the police, prison reform, uh, justice reform, stuff like that, they're not going to leave these blocks. Now, some it was originally called Chaz. It was basically an autonomous zone, and now it's the occupied protest. I, I, there, what's interesting is there. You, there's a lot of different news. Some people say Chop is a hellish landscape devoid of all law enforcement, where crime rules. It's like that show Max Hedrum, but real. It's not 15 minutes in the future. It's now. Other people say it's a protest zone. It's where people are basically going to do a long-term sit-in. They're going to stay there until their demands are met. So we have these two completely different narratives. Depending on where you're getting your news, you're getting two completely different stories about it. So we have to look at the people on the ground. Or more importantly, the people on the rooftops. That was lightning strikes. The Carpenter Caboose is pulling into Seattle. We're getting closer to CHOP. And... James Lang sent me this story last night. It was, I'll remember this time forever. He sent me this story last night at 11.59. I was laying in bed, and I was like, yep, I'm doing this story tomorrow. Thank you, James, for sending it over. (laughs) Lightning bolts. There's a man on a rooftop looking down at Chop. He's like kneeling all dramatically. (laughs) It's really stormy this particular day. Don't look up on the weather report. This was June 12th. 2020, there's a man sitting on a rooftop overlooking CHOP, this six-block city that sprung up in the middle of Seattle. He pulls out his phone. He tweets, I'm out of retirement. Streets need me. Seattle, hold it together. I'm on my way. He jumps off right when the lightning bolt strikes. It actually strikes the building. He jumped. He knew what was going to happen. He jumped off before he got electrocuted. 
Phoenix Jones is back, ladies and gentlemen. Phoenix Jones is back. If you don't know who Phoenix Jones is, I did a whole, I don't think it was a whole episode, but I had a really long segment on him. Episode 410, The Rise and Fall of Phoenix Jones. He's a real-life superhero. He's been doing it for like 10, 15, 20 years. He has a costume. He goes. He stops crime. Sometimes he beats people up. He's an MMA fighter. He's actually competed in sanctioned matches. He knows what he's doing. But what happened was recently he he got disillusioned. It's a really good episode. It's a really, I really like that episode. I like that story about Phoenix Jones. But he got disillusioned with it and then eventually was very recently arrested for drug dealing. But the, he was supposed to go to trial in July, and then every then the COVID thing happened and all that stuff, and everything got shut down. So he ha, he's not arrested. He's just facing charges. So he's watching this whole thing happening. He's obviously watching the protests that are rocking Seattle, massive protests in Seattle, like a lot of the major cities. And then he sees CHOP. But when CHOP was established, the city pulled the police out of the area. They pulled them out of the precinct. What's weird is no one will admit to doing that. The chief of police is like, I didn't make that call. Someone higher than me did. And no one's saying who it was. But anyway, so there are no police in this six-block radius. Now, the protesters need a way to police themselves. You do need some sort of law and order. I mean, you can try pure anarchy. It's probably not going to work if you have a bunch of different interest in this area so that's where phoenix jones steps in see he's watching this whole thing from the roof that's what he does he doesn't have a television doesn't have internet he just stays all day on the rooftops it's like hmm i wonder what the sports scores are he's looking through people's windows turn turn the channel i want to see how the raiders are doing so he has this quote involved about the whole thing it's been incredibly challenging because the black lives matter movement is like a blanket word right black lives matter obviously everyone agrees with that but there's a lot of other stuff in there that's kind of weird and then there's the Antifa angle and all these different things. But no matter what that is, taking over six city blocks is just illegal. Unquote. So, Phoenix Jones, law and order dude, other than the alleged drug dealing, alleged drug dealing, he comes into CHOP. He definitely has a rep in the city, right? But he is there to protect the people of CHOP. Thank you, Phoenix. Thanks for coming down. Yeah. Shaking hands, yeah, yeah, we really, really like you, dude. Yeah, yeah, thanks, I really like myself too, but no, you're pretty good. But see, there's another rooftop. There's another rooftop. And on that rooftop, of course there's other rooftops, there's not just one building, but on the other rooftop you have two other superheroes. Red Ranger and his sidekick, Spirit Fox. The storm's farther away now, so the thunder's not as loud. It's just raining on these two guys, it's a light drizzle. Red Ranger and Spirit Fox are sitting on this other building. Now, they are members of a group called Seattle Superheroes. Phoenix Jones used to be a member of the Rain City Superheroes, I think it was called. He used to be the leader, but that group disbanded. Now they have a new group called Seattle Superheroes. Now, Red Ranger and Spirit Fox are part of this group. They also came to CHOP to help keep law and order. But they believe that a supervillain is in their midst. And that supervillain is none other than PJ himself, Phoenix Jones. Not that old show about Eddie Murphy as a plumber. No, this is actually Phoenix Jones. Red Ranger, his quote regarding Phoenix Jones is, quote, If he hurts and kills people, we're here to deal with that. Red Ranger was telling other people, hey, keep an eye out for Phoenix Jones. And if you see him, don't get his autograph. Let us know. We are going to have to possibly deal with this thing. So is there a superhero war? He also made allegations that he was harassing women and stuff like that as well. I, I don't know about that. I don't know about the drug dealer or anything like that. So it is quite possible in the next couple of days, really, 
We are going to have our very first in world history fight between two superheroes in the streets of Chop. What what reality are we living in? What reality are we living in now where costumed superheroes, one who's had a fall from grace, who like left the cowl behind, got arrested, and then he's being a challenge to a fight by another superhero? What what where what what reality is this? But anyways, that that is the world we live in now. Thank you, James. I, I'm flabbergasted. But I just said recently how stories weren't getting weird. There weren't enough weird stories anymore. And then I had a bunch of eBay executives send a fetus to someone who wrote a blog. And now this. Now superheroes. A true civil war scenario. I mean, we did have a real civil war. But this would be the comic book civil war. Superheroes duking it out in the middle of an autonomous zone in the middle of Seattle. What in the, what is what is going on? I gotta admit, it's kind of fun though. So thank you, James, for that. Let's go ahead, Mikhail. Let's hop in the carpenter copter. We're headed out to Britain. We're flying on out to jolly old England. We are headed to Frimley, specifically Frimley. Helicopters flying over the lush countryside. It's the year 1976, the year I was born. So what was this? 44 years ago, roughly. Helicopters flying over quaint villages and stuff like that. And in Frimley, there is an industrial center, research and development. It's basically just like a bunch of buildings, a campus of sorts. It's owned by Marconi Systems. Now, Marconi, it's been bought out by now, but at the time, it was went by the name Marconi Systems or GEC Marconi Systems, General Electric Company. But anyway, we're going to refer to them as Marconi for the bulk of this episode. So they're a defense contractor. They worked with the British government. They worked with the American government. Specific with the British government, they did a lot of stuff. They were working on this high tech torpedo, and then with the American government, they were working on this strategic defense initiative, which you may know as Star Wars. It was basically the ability to shoot down Russian nukes from space. I, I, they never officially implemented it, but I'm sure there's some version of it up there. But anyway, so high-level stuff. This, these guys weren't just pushing paper. These guys were working on cutting-edge technology for Britain and the United States. So in 1976, when a security guard's walking around the premises late at night, it's not a job you're going to slack off on, right? So we, we, we snuck past him. We're walking behind him every time he takes a step. He's like, what? We sneak past him because we're experts. But anyways, he's walking, he's walking through the campus of Marconi Systems, and then he's walking through the building. He's walking through the building known as the Old House, and this is where some of the most secure files are. This is where the actual director of, the company director's office was in this place called the Old House. So he's walking through there, he's shining his light, and he sees down the hallway, he sees a door. There, Obviously, there's doors in the hallway. That He's not like, what, a door? Well, I better call, better call my boss. He sees a door, it's an ordinary door, there's a bunch of ordinary doors, but underneath the door he sees blue light. So he's walking with his flashlight. And as he gets close to the door, pulls out his gun. Again, these aren't just night watchmen. This is heavily secured area. Pulls out his gun. I don't even think they own guns. I don't even think they I don't even think guns can exist in Britain nowadays. I think they immediately dissolve once the plane lands. He pulls out his gun and he opens the door. He sees a figure going through a file cabinet. And in the darkness, he can kind of make it. He sees like a blue glow around it. And in the darkness, he's trying to figure out. It looks like a human, but as his eyes are starting to adjust, he realizes it's not. 
It's humanoid. It's described as an extraterrestrial, so take of what that you will. I, a gray, most likely. I think when most people just say the word extraterrestrial, they mean a gray alien. But this point, the guard is getting ready to just shoot the abomination that's in front of him. The alien turns, and he realizes at that point the blue light was coming from a headlamp the alien was wearing. It was shooting off this blue beam. And when the alien turned and looked straight at the security guard, once the light hit the security guard's face, the alien completely vanished. The guard then began screaming out loud. Totally freaked him out. The security on the facility is alerted. Everything is locked down. And supposedly two days later, some psychiatrists, some military psychiatrists showed up. As opposed to the regular psychiatrists, right? These are Their, their lab coats are camouflaged, colored. They take him away. He couldn't see him coming because they were coming out of the bushes. They're military psychiatrists, and no one on the facility saw him again. Now, that sounds like a goofy little alien story, right? We don't have a name. We don't have an exact date. We don't know the name of the security guard or anything like that. That story I just told you is easily the most believable part of what I'm about to tell you. And not in a sense of, listen to all this wacky stuff we're about to do. Everything after this... Everything after that alien story I just told you is 100% verifiable with obituaries, news articles, government proceedings. That story there with the alien that we really can't source at all that I found on one website is easily the least interesting thing about this story. So strap in, guys, because this is absolutely bizarre. Mikhail, take us back up in this Carpenter Copter. We are going to fly deeper into England. Shani Warren, she's 26-year-old personal assistant in the biochemical subdivision at Marconi Systems. The day before, April 16th, hanging out with her family, mowing the lawn, doing all sorts of normal stuff. April 17th, someone's walking their dog. Shani is found face down in a body of water. Her legs were bound. Her mouth was gagged. She had a noose wrapped around her neck. Hands tied behind her back. Purse and keys missing. Never found. Her car was parked by the side of this lake. She was probably, she was like just face down. When the person was walking the dog, they saw the body in the, they saw the body in the water just kind of laying down. Legs bound, hands bound, gagged. Suicide. Suicide. Official ruling was suicide. People were like, that's, that's impossible, right? And, and the coroner goes, well, no, I could name at least three other people who have killed, have drowned themselves in this fashion. After 72 hours, after 72 hours, finally, the coroner goes, oh, okay, fine, fine, fine. I'll change it to an open verdict. There, you, you happy now? Homicide investigators? Yeah, yeah, finally. Now, one of the reasons why they thought it was a suicide, although all of those things make it seem like it was a murder, was that they only found her shoe prints in the mud leading up to the water. But other people said she was wearing stiletto heels. And they were saying what they were seeing were they were seeing the stilettos sink into the mud. While someone else's shoes, they may not have sunk that much, they're not as noticeable. In 1997, there was a serial rapist named Clive Barwell who was caught. And he was charged, he's, he's in prison now, but... He, he basically was this rapist who, his, that was his M.O., was tying women up. He had never murdered anyone before, but he'd tie women up, and once he threw a woman in the canal, 
And she was basically so close to drowning, she had to stand on her tippy toes so her head would be above water. And she'd scream and scream for help, and he just watched her for a while and eventually walked away. And his string of crimes were back in the late 80s. 1997, he finally gets arrested. So people go, there you go. This person who's working for Marconi Systems, she committed suicide. Wait, no, 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 she didn't. 72 hours later, when we've lost a lot of time to, you know, try to investigate this. No, she, she, open verdict. They never even said she was killed. But then in 1997, this pervert was caught, and he liked tying women up, throwing them in the water. So that was probably bad. But a week before this happened, she wasn't working for Marconi Systems. She worked for another company that Marconi Systems bought out. So Marconi Systems buys the company that she's working for. A week later, she's dead. The same day her body is found. Another employee of Marconi Systems jumped off a viaduct a mile away. Well, he's the one who did it, maybe. No, no, no. He survived. And he goes, I don't... They go, why'd you jump? And he's like, I don't even remember walking to the viaduct. I have no idea. Like, I basically woke up in a hospital. What am I doing here? Dude, you jumped off this this giant thing. What? August 5th, 1986. Vimal Daj Bahai, 24 years old. He worked on a torpedo guidance system for Marconi. He's found dead at the bottom of a gorge. So they believe he jumped off just like this guy did at the viaduct. But he didn't survive. He died. And when they're doing the... The first thing that was weird is his pants were down around his ankles. That was weird, right? I mean, I don't... I'm not an expert on killing yourself, but I don't think you'd want to be like, I'm going to make this as difficult as possible. Not only am I going to jump off this bridge, but I'm going to be super uncomfortable while I do it. I'm going to put socks on my hands, too. His pants were down around his ankles, and he had a needle, a little needle puncture mark in his butt, in his butt cheek. You see, the needle mark was caused because he landed on a perfect needle-sized rock. Suicide. Suicide. He, he killed himself. October 28th, 1986. Ashad Sharif, computer systems analysis for Marconi. He kills himself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this one. You're going to go, that's a bizarre way to kill yourself. And it's not even close to the weirdest one on this list. October 28th, 1986. Ashad ties a rope around a tree and puts the noose around his neck. He then gets in his car. A uh, little twist there. He gets in his car and drives off so fast that his head gets ripped off. Suicide. By the way, that's on his death certificate. Suicide. January 1987. Richard Pug. 37 years old, digital communications expert for Marconi Systems. His feet are tied, plastic bag over his head, a rope coiled around his neck and his body. He was listed as death by misadventures, basically a sex game gone wrong. That happens. But three months later, April 1987, another guy working for Marconi Systems is also found with a bag over his head and cling wrap wrapped around his face Ah, he was also doing, he was like, what? That sounded like fun. That guy was doing that in January. He died, but I'm going to do it better. When I was reading about this, they said that's actually a go-to for espionage, assassinations, to make it look like a sex game gone wrong. Because not only do they get the job done, they kill you, but they also kind of diminish your name. They make you look bad. I will never commit suicide, but I will doubly never commit suicide masturbating. So that dude was like, give me some of that. Give me some of that January 11th. Sure, that guy died, but I'll do it. You know what he didn't do right? He didn't wrap cling wrap around his head as well. I'm going to do that. He dies too. So both of those are just classified as death by misadventure. Sex games gone wrong. 
March 30th, 1987, sandwiched in between those two. March 30th, 1987. David Sands. He, he worked on an air defense contract for Esums. That was a sister company of Marconi. Takes his car, loads it full of gasoline cans, drives into a restaurant, and blows up. This is real. This is not like, I found this on Wacky Ways to Die. These were full-on investigations into this. Major newspapers were covering this back in the day. They had to identify him by his teeth. He blew up! Blew up in public. He loaded a car full of gasoline and drove into a restaurant, killing himself. I mean, it's a little... That was the ruling. Suicide. A little overly dramatic, David, but... I mean, I guess if you got to go out, that's the way to go out. It's definitely preferable to some of these other ways we got coming up. August 1987, Alastair Beckham, 55 years old, software engineer, Marconi Systems, goes into his gardening shed one day, takes some exposed wires and attaches them to his chest, puts a handkerchief in his mouth, plugs the wires into the outlet, electrocutes himself. What? John Ferry, 60 years old, he was a director for Marconi. He heard that story and goes, I can do better than that. He took exposed wires, put them in the fillings of his teeth, plugged it into an outlet, killed himself. Both of those suicides. January 8th, 1987, Avtar Singh Gita. He's an underwater electronics researcher working in Britain. For Marconi Systems. He goes missing. And you know at this point everyone's thinking, oh, that dude's dead, right? They're probably just hoping he didn't die in the most horrible way possible. Months later, turns up in France. What? What are you doing over there? He goes, I don't know. I have no, I don't know where I've been for the past couple months. Last thing I know, I was in my gardening shed doing some rewiring and then I'm in France. What? This is bizarre. So we have two people with lost memories. We have all these suicides. I left out a lot of the suicides. 25 suicides or open verdicts from 1982 to 1990. All of them working for Marconi Systems. Most of them right before their contract was up. Some of them right before they transferred to another company. There was a huge investigation into this, obviously. Massive investigation into this. The government of Britain goes, what are you going to do? This is really stressful work. People are going to kill themselves. Now, some of the 25 were, I think four of them were people found in their garage with their car running. They died of carbon monoxide poisoning. And here's the thing. You do have things like suicide clusters. When one person commits suicide, a lot of people in the community commit suicide. It is the 1980s. It is the Cold War. Very was like high-pressure work. Some of those may have been suicides. One of the carbon monoxide poisonings, the police go, this is, this is not a suicide. They said the, his mouth was on the tailpipe. He literally was talking to his wife in the house and goes, I need to go take care of something in the garage. And then a while passes and she's like, oh, that's weird. He hasn't shown, he hasn't come back yet. She may have went to bed, whatever. But anyway, she discovers about his mouth was on the tailpipe and it was contorted. His whole body was contorted in such a way the police go, there's no way he could have jammed his own body in there. But the government would say, well, it's suicide. It's suicide. They're being overworked. We should look into some of that labor protection stuff. We're not going to, but we should. Professor Colin Pritchard, he's an expert in mental illness and suicide. This is a really interesting quote he had about this. This is from an article on the website, The The Unredacted. 
Pritchard cites the case, talking about the suspicious deaths, Pritchard cites the cases of at least four of the men that share unusual elements. All four men had complained to friends and family that they had been tasked strange, impossible, and unscientific tasks by their employers. So that's weird. Now we're getting back into this whole idea of, now you see the alien going through the file cabinet? That's that's fine. I'll take that story any day, right? 25 bodies. Now, again, some of them were drug overdoses. One of them was a guy drowned in the bathtub. He had bottles of liquor and pills next to him. But when they did the autopsy, he had no alcohol or drugs in his system. Which is bizarre stuff. But anyway, so you have these you have these scientists that are being told, they're telling their families, I can't do it. They're asking me to do something. It's not even possible. It's not even scientific. So now we're going back into the realm of what were these guys working on? Were they working on some sort of reverse engineering alien technology? Some sort of hardcore black box stuff? But what's funny is that that might be true. That's almost the story the the story without the aliens, without the crazy stuff is just as interesting because it is real. And they're dying in these super bizarre ways. Let's go back to this quote here. We're talking about Pritchard saying that the the employees were complaining this stuff we can't do it. All four men committed suicide in incredibly violent and bizarre ways. Pritchard has studied numerous suicide cases and thinks such extreme suicide methods are normally only associated with people suffering severe mental breakdowns to the extent that they would be unable to even hold down jobs. What he means by that is that the way they killed themselves was so insane they shouldn't have been able to function, right? Like, when someone's contemplating sticking electrical wires into their teeth, into their fillings, to kill themselves, they shouldn't be bathing, they shouldn't be eating. I mean, they can do those things. If I'm not saying, nah, I know you're mentally disturbed, you better not eat, but you know what I mean? He's saying they shouldn't be able to be able to wake up, to do basic hygiene, to go to work, say hi to your boss, drink coffee, da -da, and then go home and kill yourself. By wrapping a rope around your neck and driving at the top speed until your head falls off. That's not how that works. That's not how that works. And he says, he says in the rest of this quote, Yet all the men were employed up until the day of their deaths, and none had shown any sign of mental illness or disturbance. According to the government, this was a rash of suicides and bizarre accidents. There was a journalist named Tony Collins. He wrote a book about it called Open Verdict. He was the one who really connected all 25 cases because we're talking about a span of about eight years. You'd see an article pop up here, an article pop up there. 1987, 1988, you see the list we went through. That's when they really ramped up, and that's when they got increasingly bizarre. Increasingly bizarre. Tony Collins wrote this book. To this day, the British government still says they were suicides and or death by misadventures. Maybe the woman was killed by a serial killer. Other people say that it was foreign espionage. Which would make sense the government would want to cover that up. If the Russians were killing off British scientists who were working for Marconi systems, who wants to work for them, right? But then you have to look at the idea that these people were dying before their contracts were up or before they were transferring to other companies. So was Marconi themselves cleaning house? What happened to the two people, the guy who walked to the viaduct and jumped off, survived a suicide attempt? He doesn't remember what happened. And then we have that last guy, too, who ended up in France. What was the what was the verdict on that? Was the British government going, ah, you know how it is. Sometimes you get so stressed out, you just you just kind of lose a couple months of your life. That happens to me all the time. Just walk away, go to another country. Yeah, it's that level of stress. And what what was the case with them? 
what were these guys working on? Was it some high-level tech that is so high-level that an alien <laughs> that an alien needs to break into your office? And that story took place in 1976. If aliens are breaking into your file cabinets in 1976, these stories take place 11 years later. Who knows what they were working on? Now, the alien story, again, I only found the one source for it. There's no proof of that. It could just be a local legend. I don't know. But even if we left that story out, you still have 25 people working for the same company within 10 years killing themselves in increasingly bizarre and morbid ways. So even without the aliens, without that conspiracy, you still have a very human, very dark and evil conspiracy. Who was killing these people? Some of these probably were, just statistically, some of them probably were suicides, right? You could probably say like two, three, four of them maybe were suicides. Like actual suicides, but the rest of them are still listed as suicide or just open verdict, which means they just couldn't figure it out. So we're left with a whole host of questions in the year 2020. Who did this? Why did they do it? What were they covering up? What were these people actually working on? What were these unscientific or impossible tasks? And these are all questions that we'll never know. So much time has passed. So many of the main sources for these stories have moved on. We have books and articles that talk about this, but is there any current investigation? I just stumbled across this. I I found this in a list-first article. It was number two of, like, craziest alien encounters. And I found that thing about the alien at the Marconi systems. And I go, that's interesting. And I googled Marconi systems and found this. I had no idea this ever happened. This is a huge conspiracy. And I say this all the time while everyone's looking at the big, giant, world-dominating, Illuminati, reptilian conspiracy theories. This is happening. It's being documented in newspapers. There's families and loved ones that are dealing with... This is a real conspiracy. Completely obscure. Some of you guys in Britain may know. And I, I bet you people my age who live in Britain are familiar with this. I had never heard of it before. Never, ever heard of it before. It was a list first article about crazy alien stories. And I just happened to Google Marconi systems. These are the conspiracies we got to look out for. These are the conspiracy theories that take players off the board. These are the conspiracies that matter. This is the type of conspiracy theory that affects your daily life. Definitely affected these guys' daily lives. They got electrocuted. Falling off cliffs and stuff. These are the conspiracy theories that matter. These are conspiracy theories that don't get covered a lot. Because this is, this has jumped beyond just a true crime story. This is a definition of a conspiracy theory. But it exists, it happened, there's documents. Reams and reams and reams of documents. And whoever did this is still out there. These are the type of conspiracy theories we need to be talking about. Well, you know, when you look at that Fox Mulder poster, I want to believe. We want to believe in like UFOs and Bigfoots and and aliens and, and ghosts and all that stuff. We don't need a poster that says, I want to believe, and it's just a picture of a human. Because we know how evil humans can be. Now, whether this was caused by corporate espionage, whether this was caused by international espionage, whether or not this was caused by the government trying to cover something up, Marconi Systems trying to cover something up, we don't know. We don't know any of that stuff. We spend so much time investigating all these other conspiracies. Imagine if all the brain power that went into Is 9-11 an Inside Job went into this case. Those Tens of thousands of man-hours that we've put in to 9-11 and Inside Job put into this single case. How do you think it would people would be in prison right now? I want to believe that as a conspiracy theory community, we can be better. 
I want to believe that as a conspiracy theory community, we can actually solve some of these ones, the ones that actually matter. I want to believe that we can achieve that. I believe that someday we will. I believe someday we will stop taking seriously all of the completely ridiculous conspiracy theories out there and use our collective minds to do some good, to make some change. I believe that. And I hope you do too. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great weekend, guys. 